Take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Samuel. That's our book for today. 1 Samuel, we're in a series of messages where we are summarizing the books of the Bible, seeking to come to an understanding of the overall landscape of Scripture and the way that God unfolds His story to us. And we've made our way up to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1 is where we will begin, and 1 Samuel will show us the rise of the monarchy in Israel, the coming of the Israelite kings. But here's the key concept for today. When you wonder what to do next, the right question is, what will please God? What will please God? In 1 Samuel, the monarchy comes to be. Kings ruling in Israel will take place from 1050 B.C. to 586 B.C. Now the events portrayed in 1 Samuel span a 115-year period. From the days when Eli was the priest and judge, through the days of Samuel, through the reign of Saul, to the beginning of the rule of David. In the Hebrew Bible, 1 and 2 Samuel are one book. It was divided into two books when the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament Scriptures, was translated from Hebrew to Greek. And as we understand it, if we were to understand it as one book, we recognize that Samuel is not the author. And the reason is because he dies fairly early in the story when you take the books together. But it was written and named in his honor. Most likely the book of 1 Samuel was written soon after Solomon's death in 931 B.C. And we can get an overview of the book of 1 Samuel by looking at the three leadership portraits that make, the bulk, make up the bulk of the book. The leadership portrait of Samuel, of Saul, and of David. And when the book opens up, we, are actually, we actually come to meet Samuel's mother. Her name is Hannah. And Hannah means grace. But Hannah was experiencing anything other than grace in her life. It seems like she's had little grace because... As the book opens, we learn that Hannah is childless. And she lives in a culture and she lives in a day when barrenness is considered a personal tragedy. Barrenness was a reason for social ostracism and whispers about the judgment of God. The thinking would have been, what did, what did Hannah do that God has closed her womb? And so she's upset by that, she's concerned by that, and her husband, Elkanah, tries to comfort her in the typical lame way that husbands do, you know. Literally, he says, aren't I enough for you? No, that's the point. She wants a baby. And the family travels down to Shiloh to worship where the tabernacle is uh, uh, and the religious feasts, and her her sadness just kind of comes to a crescendo in chapter 1, verse 10. Read there with me. It says, In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. She made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. And God answers that prayer. And soon after that, she has a baby. She names him Samuel, which means asked of God. And she is true to her vow, eventually bringing Samuel back to Shiloh and entrusting him into the care of the priest and judge Levi. And there, Samuel actually lives in the tabernacle and helps in the service there. 
And as we turn over to chapter 3, Samuel is by now a small child, a young, young boy, and he's sleeping in the tabernacle when one night he literally hears God speak. At first he doesn't recognize his voice. He thinks that Eli is calling to him in the night, and so he goes in to where Eli is sleeping, and, you know, can I help you? What can I do for you? And Eli says, I didn't call you. Sends him back, comes back again after he hears the voice a second time, and, and now Eli is beginning to get suspicious that this might be the Lord speaking to little Samuel, and he says, if you hear the voice again, respond by saying, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And in chapter 3, verse 10, the voice comes again. The Lord came and stood there, calling as as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. But it's bad news. And it's bad news for Eli and his family. Judgment was about to come to Eli and his family because of the sins of Eli's sons. You see, the priest Eli had two grown sons who were assisting him in the ministry. But they were evil. And Eli was apathetic. He was unable or unwilling to do anything about it. But what was happening was the sons were demanding bribes from the men who came to worship and sexual favors from the women who came to worship. And the heart of God was disgusted with this behavior. Judgment was coming to the family of Eli, and it will be swift and severe. It happens in chapter 4. The Philistines invade. They are at war with the Israelites. And and for the Israelites, it is a calamity. Their army is routed. In the battle, Eli's two sons are killed and The Ark of the Covenant is stolen by the Philistines. You see, his two sons, Eli's sons, thought that if they would just march the Ark of the Covenant out into the battlefield, it would be a good luck charm. It's like something right out of Indiana Jones. And there they would be able to be victorious. But God is not a God of superstition like this. And the Philistines are victorious. The sons are killed. The Ark is stolen. And the runner reports the news to Eli, and he falls over and dies of shock. All in one day. But in chapter 5, we learn that it's not such a great thing for the Philistines to have the Ark of the Covenant. What they've done is they've taken the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Now, we have to understand that that would be a typical behavior of this day. Because the thinking was this. When we are victorious over our enemies, what has happened is our God has been victorious over our enemies' gods. And so regularly, they would take artifacts back from that conquered civilization, whatever we're talking about, back into their temple, and they'd put those artifacts in the temple of their pagan god, symbolizing the fact that our God is victorious over this god. We'll see it again in the book of Daniel in Babylon with Belshazzar and using the vessels of the temple. But here, it's the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, it's a major artifact, and they bring it into the the temple of Dagon. But what happens is, every morning when they wake up, the, the statue of Dagon is flat on its face in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Let's read in verse 3 of chapter 5. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. 
But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. And not only was this happening, but also what was starting to occur is uh, two things. The people of the city were, were having skin ulcers, tumors of, on the skin, and an infestation of rats occurred. And the priests of Dagon figure out this is not a good thing to have around. And so they start moving the Ark of the Covenant from city to city. But the same thing happens in any Philistine town where the Ark of the Covenant goes. They have rats infesting and they have tumors on their skin. And eventually they come around to the idea that says, we have to get rid of this thing. But how to do that? So they get a cart. They put the Ark of the Covenant on the cart. They hitch up two cows to the cart. And the priests of Dagon say this. Let's make an offering. And they fashion out of gold rats and replicas of skin ulcers and they put that in the cart as an offering and they get, they shoo the cows away and they let the cows just go wherever they're going to go eventually the cows meander into israelite territory and they end up at a town called kiriath jerim in chapter 7 and there it, the a, a man named abinadab takes the ark of the covenant into his house and because he is reverent with the Ark of the Covenant, he is blessed. And over the course of the next 20 years, Samuel is the judge of Israel and the nation experiences peace. It's summarized in chapter 7, verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. Success. But as usual, the good times don't last. Go down to chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. It turns out that Samuel's sons were just as corrupt as Eli's sons. And in desperation for good leadership, the people come and they say, give us a king. We notice that all the other nations all around us, they have a king. We want a king too, because your sons are blowing it. But God understands that this reason that they're giving is just a pretense. It's not really because of how bad Samuel's sons are doing. In verse 20 of chapter 8, the real reason is given. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. That's the real reason. We want to be like everybody else. And we want somebody we can see fighting our battles. See, the issue is this. They are rejecting their distinctiveness as a nation ruled directly from the God of the heavens through prophets and judges. They're saying, we want to make our own leadership choices. We want to define authority the way we define authority and establish the systems of authority our way. We are not too fond any longer of taking it by faith that there is an invisible God up in the heavens who's directing people to show us the way we should go. We want a king we can see. We're not so hepped up about this invisible king anymore. And God says, they are rejecting me. 
let them have their king. And so in chapter 9, Samuel meets the man who will be the, the first king of Israel, Saul. And the second leadership portrait begins. Now at first, King Saul hits all the right notes. He is humble when he's chosen. He's not resentful when he's criticized. He is a forceful leader when the Ammonites try to embarrass Israel, and he is a shrewd general in battle. He's doing everything right. But we need to understand the coronation and the victory recorded in chapter 11 is the high point of Saul's career. From there on in, it's all downhill. What you have in King Saul is a man who peaks early. Have you ever known anybody who peaks early? In the very beginning, it looked like they were going to do great, and then nothing really materialized, like all the one-hit wonders groups on the, on the radio, you know. Boy, I love their music, but where are they, you know? All gone, one hit. I can relate to that, personally. I think back to my little league career. <laughs> when I was 10 years old, I played for the Knights of Columbus Aces back in New Jersey. And uh, I remember a particular game early in the season. I hit two home runs in one game. People loved me. I was a star. Two home runs in one game. Parents were patting me on the back, shaking my hand before they never even spoke to me. Now all of a sudden, you know, I, they all, they all, I'm a celebrity. And then the next game came, and I came up to bat, and I could hear parents behind the chain link fence saying, oh, this kid can hit. Boy, that felt good, you know. Wow, my reputation is growing and so forth. The coaches from the other team would be like, back up, back up, you know. <laughs> this is great. The problem was, it never happened again. <laughs> you know, it was a, like a sudden surge of baseball bravado all of a sudden and never to be repeated. And then game after game, it was just, you know, disappointment and disappointment. And finally, I was on the bench with the rest of the nameless rabble that nobody ever called on. <laughs> I peaked. I was a has-been at 10. <laughs> well, that's exactly Saul's situation. He, he peaked way early. And he has a lot of career ahead of him. And by the time you get to chapter 13, Israel is at war again with the Philistines. And uh, they're, they're lining up for battle. And Samuel has instructed Saul, listen, what you need to do is you wait till I get there. Because when I get there, I'm going to offer a sacrifice to ask God's blessing on this. And you just wait. And Saul doesn't like to wait. You see, waiting shows trust. Waiting demands humility. Waiting is a statement. I know I'm not in charge here. I'm not setting the timetable. I'll submit to the timing of another when I wait. And Saul didn't want to wait. Proud people don't wait. And so Saul, seeing that his army was getting a little nervous, decides to act as a priest himself. And he gives the makes the sacrifice himself because he thought that somebody needed to take charge and rally these troops. But the test was not, will you take charge? The test was, will you obey and wait? And he fails that crucial test. Samuel does come. And in chapter 13, verse 14, he pronounces, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command that announcement declares that Saul will not have a dynasty there will be no house of Saul 
a new man will come and take over and it will not be in your family. And because of that, all of the paranoia and the suspicion that we see in Saul begins to come to the surface. He's slipping downhill after this, both mentally and spiritually and emotionally. And by the time you get to chapter 15, if you'll turn over there, things totally fall apart between Samuel and Saul. Because once again, Samuel has come to Saul with the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord through Samuel is this. It's time for you to go to war against the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites were nomadic people, and they were a problem for Israel right from the very beginning. Even when they were entering the land, the Amalekites were enemies of God's people, and they still were around and unable, they were unable to defeat them thus far. But the time has come, God says, you've got to get serious about this because they are a problem for the existence of Israel. And here's the key thing. When you go to a war with the Amalekites, you are to take no spoil and you are to spare no survivors. You are to consider everything they own and have defiled and burn it all. But Saul in the battle saw the wealth of the Amalekites. He saw the flocks and he saw the herds and he thought to himself, what a waste of all this stuff. What a waste to burn it all the way God has said. And so look at chapter 15, verse 9. But Saul and the army spared Agag, that's the king, and the best of the sheep and the cattle and the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good, these they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and was weak, they totally destroyed. And right there you see the essence of disobedience. The essence of disobedience is taking God's instructions and twisting them. Not obeying completely, obeying somewhat. Just twisting them a little bit. Because we come to believe that total obedience will cost us too much. I will have more stuff. I will have more fun. I will have more pleasure with just partial obedience. Because after all, I know more than God. That was Saul's attitude and it is ours all too often. But this time it costs Saul dearly. And the announcement is your time is up. Samuel and Saul no longer see one another ever again. Their relationship is over. And by the time we get to chapter 16, we're coming to the third leadership portrait, David. It didn't happen right away, but David, son of Jesse, begins to emerge as the new leader. Heroes don't always look the part from the very beginning. They come in surprising packages. And God doesn't see so much the outside, but he sees the inner person, the heart and the abilities. When God sends Samuel to Jesse's house, something surprising happens. Samuel, uh, 16 verse 1, it says, The Lord says to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. In chapter 16, Samuel comes to Jesse's house. I want to anoint one of your sons as king. And all the boys come in all dressed up, looking good. They're handsome. They're impressive. But one by one, Samuel looks at the sons of Jesse and says, No, that's not the one. No, that's not the one. That's not the one. That's not the one. It goes all the way down the line until finally everybody in the room is ruled out. And Samuel's scratching his head. You know, God told me one of your sons is, is going to be the next king. In chapter 16, Verse 11, so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? 
There's somebody else like hidden in the basement somewhere, up in the attic. I mean, you know, are these all the sons you have? Well, there's the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. We'll not sit down until he arrives. That's the part I like. You see, we lose the sense of time. We live with text messaging and cell phones. You know, he didn't say, you know, text David, have him come in. Send for him. They've got to send somebody way out into the fields where the sheep are. They've got to go out there with a replacement for David who's watching the sheep. Somebody has to do that. David has to return to the house. And all the while that that's going on, who knows how long that takes, Samuel says, no one sits. Stay standing. And all these sons that he has just rejected, who have dressed up for the occasion, want to look good, have all been rejected. They're standing there with nothing to do and nothing to say. Can't you almost just hear the Jeopardy music playing in the background? <laughs> you know, when's David going to get here? And picture the moment when David opens the door and every face turns and stares at him. I can imagine David, what? What'd I do? <laughs> right? You know, he comes in with, the work, with his work clothes on, smelling like sheep. And Samuel says, that's the guy. What? unorthodox, unbelievable, outrageous kind of story, but that's exactly what happens. His dad forgot about him, but God hadn't forgotten. The family thought of David as just little Davy. Hey, we're going to have an important meeting. Samuel's coming to our house. Great. David, you go watch the sheep. He's not invited to the important meeting, but God wanted him there. With that in mind, do not rush to judgment of the people around you by what you see on the outside. With that in mind, do not judge yourself by what you see on the outside. God is working, preparing us from the inside out for his, his work for our lives. And so God is beginning to put David in a place where he will uh, take over as the next king. The first thing he has to do is get him used to being in the royal courts. He's not used to that. And so at the end of chapter 16, David is invited to be the musician there to play soothing music. He's skilled uh, on the harp. And then you get to chapter 17, and there's the story of David and Goliath. Now, you need to know when you get to chapter 17 that that is a flashback. Okay? In other words, the author is inserting the story of David and Goliath here, basically saying this to you as the reader. Let me tell you a little bit about this David. Let me show you a little bit about who he is and his character. If you don't understand that that's what that is, you're going to be real confused because Saul doesn't even know David in chapter 17. But he's already been playing in the courts in chapter 16. It's because it's a, a previous story. And it also kind of outlines the reason why Saul would be so... Uh, open to having David come down to the palace. He's impressed with this young man. But David fights Goliath in chapter 17 and displays his courage. He single-handedly defeats the giant who's roughly the equivalent of Shaquille O'Neal's older, meaner, larger brother. <laughs> and his reputation grows. And we see the character flaw of Saul. He cannot abide somebody else's success. He's a jealous man. And Saul quickly figures out that this is the man after God's own heart. This is the one who will be the anointed. And so Saul spends the rest of the book basically chasing David around the desert. His men chase David's men, and David has a growing group of followers who are kind of coming to his side until we get to, to chapter 28. And by chapter 28, the Philistines are at war again with Israel. 
David is so kind of uh, done with being chased around by Saul in the desert that he is actually living with the enemy, living in the Philistine towns. And the Philistines now declare war on, on Israel again. They go to battle against Saul and his forces. David not, is not invited, invited to fight on either side. But in the battle of chapter 28 and 29, time runs out for Saul. In the battle that follows, his sons are killed. His army is all killed. And in despair of the tremendous loss, Saul commits suicide. And in chapter 31, verse 6, we get the summary of the events. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died that day. They died together that same day. And so at the end of Saul's life, at the end of 1 Samuel, if you were looking, a casual observer would say, the Philistines are living in the land, the nation is utterly defeated, the army is decimated, and they have no king. That's how you would evaluate with the eye. But if you looked from a spiritual point of view, you would know that the Lord's anointed was already secretly picked out, that David was soon to take his rightful place, and the house of David would be established, for God is always at his work. But for Saul, what do you think would be written on his tombstone? He was buried in his hometown and uh, uh, by his comrades, but. What do you think they wrote there? I don't know, but a few years ago I did a series on the life of Saul. What I named it was Almost Great. I think that's a fitting epitaph, Almost Great. Almost is a sad modifier. If you have a car that almost runs, <laughs> if you almost pass your course, if you almost make the plane, if you're almost great, that's tragic. His pride caused his failure. He insisted when he came to Forks in the Road, over and over again, Saul insisted on deciding for himself. But when you wonder what to do next, the right question is, what will please God? That's got to be our question.